Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Olivia Crimmel. Hello, Damien. And Xander Wilson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, I'll be talking to founder and managing partner of Shadowboxer, Conrad Spilber, about whether the CEO role was on the cards at Dentsu International. I was asked, yeah, I probably could say that, I was asked whether I'd consider it. The rumour he would join Simon Ryan's Ryan Cap. You know, we probably sketched out some things on napkins and backs and notebooks and stuff like that over, over a few breakfasts. And what is driving the rise of independent agencies? There's just appetite, really, for change. But first, let's take a look at the news this week. The winners and losers of the last radio survey of 2020. And the news media bargaining code gets tabled in Parliament. The final radio ratings of the year dropped this week, a year that has been disrupted significantly, not least the radio ratings themselves. And with several shows in key markets being replaced in the new year, this was a farewell survey for some. Let's get straight into it. Xander, you spoke with SCA Chief Content Director Dave Cameron, who is probably focusing a lot more next year than he was uh, the ratings just passed. What were the main talking points in terms of SCA? Uh, well, I obviously had to talk to him about Two Day FM, um, you know, ahead of next year, bringing back their their talent lineup, Husey, Ed and Aaron Mullen, a brand new show there. That'll be in the spotlight first thing next year. Um, but Jamie Angel's music breakfast show in his last survey ended with a 4.2% share, which isn't too bad considering how low that slot has dropped in in, in recent years. Um, one thing SCA hasn't done with any of the lineups that it's had since Carl and Jackie O um, is to give them more than a year or so in the slot. So when I asked Cameron, he said, without a doubt, they will definitely give this new show at least a couple of years to resonate. And it may well take them that long to establish a show that can compete with the likes of Carl and Jackie O, uh, who this survey finished with um, another excellent result of an 11.3% share. Um, but ma- maybe next year, the likes of Fitzy and Whipper on Nova it might be a, a closer target for the new two-day breakfast show there, finishing... Um, in the sevens consistently over on Nova. And and as I say, that might be a more realistic target. Um, and another show that SEA is revamping next year will be Fox FM Breakfast. Um, the show actually bounced back a little bit, uh, this this book, after some poor showings in recent surveys, um, now the 6.6% share of listening. But given that show was performing in the double digits for large parts of the last few years, um, you know, they've still got some way to go. Uh, but but Cameron did point to the fact that, that Melbourne is a market that was still in lockdown for part of this survey. Um, the increased listening on 3AW, which came through this survey, sorry, not increased this survey, Survey, but over the last three surveys, we've obviously seen a large pivot to talk. So um, all eyes will be on Melbourne in Survey 1 next year um, with plenty of content directors thinking that there could be a real reset once lockdown is completely over and people head back to work there. And let me just take you back to the start very quickly, Xander, in terms of SCA and breakfast. Uh, did Cameron make mention of any goals for that slot in the short term? Um, unsurprisingly, no. I think it would be... 
it would be probably a bit irresponsible of them to say that they're targeting certain um, KPIs with with the ratings, and at least in the first six months of next year. Uh, but you'd have to think that by mid to late next year, they'd be hoping to get up in the sixes, maybe even in the sevens with that show. Um, he's obviously taken a lot of time with this. They've taken a lot of time with this and and it's something that everyone will be keeping a close eye on. So um, he, he did, you know, just keep talking about how, how much Aaron Mullen is the right fit for that show. When I asked him whether they were looking at anyone else joining Husey and Ed, he said, absolutely not. It was always going to be Aaron. Um, so they've got their people. Um, they're bringing in a show that's already performed well on drive and they're adding to it with the one person they wanted to add to it so you know from here it's up to them and and you know they can't complain if it doesn't do well and moving on from SCA Australian Radio Network is also set to relaunch its breakfast show in Mix and Adelaide next year Liv you chatted with Chief Content Officer Duncan Campbell what did he have to say about ARN's performance and looking to next year with plenty of new shows around that network? Yes, uh, Damien. The main thing that came out of Duncan during our chat was consistency and the ability of the network to deliver a consistent lineup of content across the country and throughout the year. He was extremely proud of that fact and also the fact that they were, again, the, the overall uh, winning network from a survey perspective, I believe, for the ninth survey in a row. He also mentioned that he was very impressed by the resilience of the gold team in Melbourne and, and of course, the ongoing impressive results from the team in Sydney. He said that the key takeout from the survey result is that KISS is the dominant under-40 station in Sydney, which for them is fantastic because obviously they also have then their other uh, station in Sydney, which is uh, WSFM. He said that basically they've got the under-40 and the over-40 covered. Uh, he also mentioned that um, they would be looking to try and grow that WSFM audience and, and to take some audience away from Smooth um, so that they had a stronger duopoly in Sydney going forward and that that would be a focus for them as they head into Christmas and into January. And finally, he mentioned that Perth was also a, a highlight for him in terms of the results from there. And despite a small dip in this survey, he said that their year-on-year growth was quite impressive and he was very happy with that. And let's fly back from Perth into one of the southern capitals, Melbourne. Zandi, you alluded to it just before that Melbourne is now out of lockdown. The environment's changed a little bit. What can we expect from that? Can we actually expect any change from Melbourne being out of lockdown when it comes to radio ratings? Oh, well, in this survey, we saw that Ross and, and, and ad man Russell Howcroft still kept a share around 25%, even though it dipped a little bit. Pretty outstanding results and I guess a testament to how well talk radio has done this year. Um, ben Fordham is replicating those sorts of results in Sydney way ahead of the pack with, with over 17% on breakfast. Um, and I know our colleague, uh, Brittany, spoke with Greg Greg Burns from Nine Radio, who said he expects that listeners may not return to music programming and FM after a year of lockdowns and disasters. Um, interestingly, his counterparts at, at at SCA, Dave Cameron, who I spoke to, I also spoke to, to Paul Jackson at Nova, completely disagree. Uh, they both think that there'll be a, a reset in Melbourne towards entertainment and music programming. Um, and, and speaking of Paul Jackson, uh, there hasn't been much made about Nova in, in the media in terms of show changes and lineup changes, and, and he confirmed to me there will definitely be no lineup changes to breakfast or drive in metro markets for for nova next year 
Um, and, and with the maybe with the exception of Nova 100, which he expects to bounce back, the rest of his stations end the year in very strong positions. Brisbane and Perth, he's got number one stations, and 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 he similar to to Duncan Campbell from ARN was just spruiking consistency next year. So um, I guess we'll see whether whether big changes or, or consistencies will be the key to winning 2021 in the radio ratings. Coming up next, the Morrison government has snuck in the much-anticipated media bargaining code into Parliament in the final days of sitting for the year, but what does it mean for Australian publishers and their foreign-owned tech counterparts? The news media and digital platforms mandatory bargaining code bill was finally introduced into Parliament yesterday by Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. Frydenberg described the bill as, uh, quote, a major reform, an historic reform, a world first where the eyes of the world will be on what is occurring here in Australia. The bill comes months after Australian publishers expected to start receiving payments for news and was drafted after efforts to broker a voluntary code between publishers and the digital giants fell through. Umbrella's covered the code in significant detail, but Olivia, can you recap a few of the biggest points of Frydenberg's speech? The biggest points to come out of the speech actually was that the code is not all that thorough or not that enforceable, in fact. Um, We've seen that they're going to allow negotiations outside of the code. In fact, the code actually says that they encourage uh, the publications and Google and Facebook to to enter in negotiations outside the code um, and that the uh, Australian Communications and Media Authority or the ACMA as it's otherwise known um, will be tasked as whether to decide whether that those negotiations fall in or outside the code. Um, the other interesting thing to note is that at the moment um, there's only two named on that code, but the Treasurer did say that they would be adding to that as time goes on and that they would be deciding whether a digital platform would be eligible to be included in the code in the future. I think the other really interesting thing to note is that it sets minimum standards for digital platforms, uh, including requiring 14 days advance notice of algorithm changes, which I know that large digital publishers will find that particularly of importance, the 14 days advance notice, because as we all know, uh, tech giants work very quickly and very nimbly. So we will be very interested to see how this all plays out. And I believe they've already made uh, it very aware or made us very aware of the fact that they're not particularly happy uh, with that side of of what was going to be in the code and, and now has been uh, spoken about. An interesting point here in terms of still discussing uh, the code or discussing how it will play out and, and how the tech platforms and the publishers uh, deal with each other, negotiations after the code. I mean, they couldn't come to an agreement prior to this anyway, and they're arguably still not quite at agreement. So it'll be interesting to see how that actually plays out. But let's talk about the reaction to this. Uh, Liv, what were we hearing from the different publishers? Yeah, so it is quite interesting to note that both uh, News Corp and uh, Seven West Media were quite complementary of what they got from the Treasurer in terms of this code and in terms of the high-level outline of the code from him. Um 
Channel 9 or the 9 Network were less uh, forthcoming in terms of their praise for it. They still seem to think that while they were grateful, as I as I quote, um, for the ACCC code process, they said that the continued concessions to the digital platforms, i.e. Google and Facebook, only entrenches their monopoly power and significantly unfair imbalance in regulation. So quite stark differences between those two sides of the fence, between News Corp and 7 and, and Channel 9. Um, we've yet to hear from, interestingly, from either the ABC or the SBS in terms of what their views on the code uh, so far are. So we, we wait to hear from that. We're also waiting to hear from Google and also Facebook in detail in terms of their reaction to the code. And so what happens next? What uh, are the next steps in, involved here? And will we see anything happen this side of Christmas? Surely not, you would think. Where do we go? No, we definitely won't see anything this side of Christmas. As with all uh, parliamentary bills, this is it's now in the lower house and uh, it's had its second reading. It'll then be debated by Parliament and uh, Parliament's its final day of sitting was today So for the year. So we won't see anything at all for the rest of the year and we will wait to see what debate occurs amongst the parliamentarians in the lower house early next year when parliament resumes and then it will be off to the senate um, before it becomes enforceable i feel though that the bill does really clearly state that they want these commercial entities to go out and start negotiating on their own so i think if anything we might see some um outside of code activity between these publishers similar to what we've seen with facebook in the uk and publishers there it would be uh, highly unlikely not to see any kind of agreement take place um, in the near future in some way, shape or form. And that will be fascinating to watch. Like I said before, it uh, seemed so hard to get them to negotiate previously with any real uh, effect or any real results. So we wait with bated breath to, I assume, report on this again heavily in the new year. Up next, Shadowbox's Conrad Spilver. He has a long history in the advertising industry, but despite this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's his first time on the Mumbrella cast. A warm welcome to managing partner and founder of Shadow Boxer, Conrad Spilver. Hey, Damo. Yes, you're right, mate. Uh, long time listener, first time caller, basically. Awesome. Now, 2020, likely to go down as a year of the startup agency. So much stuff happening in that area. Most important question first, what do you think of Howitson and White? Ah, oh, um, good question. First up, uh, yeah, Howie's gonna, he's a force to be reckoned with. So I dare say they're going to make a, a big um, mark in the space as an independent. Yeah, he already did running Chep for so successfully for so many years. So, uh, yeah, no, watch this space. But from what I've heard, uh, they're going to they're gonna, uh, be a force to be reckoned with. Now, I, I ask you that question because that was a bit of a smart-ass question. <laughs> and I've known you for quite some time going back to the days uh, where I was working at, at Ad News and you were, of course, over at Visual Jazz. So I felt comfortable enough uh, being a, a bit of That's a smart right. ass. I, I mean, I've known Howie for a long time. You know, I tried to hire him a couple of times, but um, he was always, uh, you know, way too smart for me, uh, way too ambitious. But he's, uh, yeah, he'll, he'll do great as an indie. 
Mate, so let's let's get rid of the jokes. Let's go into Shadowbox, the very cool name. But, but tell me, why now? What makes this different? What makes you different? What makes the Shadowbox business different and the business model different? Uh, mate, it's um, probably a number of things, you know, really. Um, I mean, first off, uh, you know, personally, you know, there was uh, an opportunity to work together again with uh, a bunch of colleagues that um, – you know, I've got an utmost respect for who I think are sort of at the top of their game in their disciplines of what they do, their expertise, you know, across, you know, brand and uh, business strategy, technology and design. Um, and so there was an opportunity to do that w- with them. And it was kind of probably more, um, you know, serendipity than by design that, that we came together to work on some projects. Um, and then, you know, also had a, a whole bunch of, you know, ex-clients, um, and friends and ex-colleagues sort of reaching out to say, you know, we've got this problem to solve. We can't find the right agency or the right partners to do it. Do you know anyone? And, and um, I was kind of like, well, I might get some of the band back together and and um, and build something again um, that can help there. And, um, you yeah, know, so there's all of that that was in play. And, and I probably left the industry, you know, and had a bit of a, um, a sort of a sabbatical in a way where I kind of went from, working in big agency land and big network land to going and working in a in a startup and a startup in the true sense of the word in my wife's business which is direct direct to consumer e-commerce and 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 I think it just gives you a different level of appreciation for just you know where the money goes you know whether it's into brand into um, supply side logistics into growth you know into marketing into media and and really the what you really need, the like fundamentals of, of understanding everything holistically about a business to act as a growth engine, whether you're an agency or a consultancy or whatever, that gives you just a, live, a different level of appreciation being in it, being in the um, in the sort of weeds of that um, and in the cogs of that machine to go, well, you could never, I could, you could never provide that value um, in a big agency. You can never really kind of understand it like that. So, just felt that there was something in that to do that too, and um, and and I probably, you know, I fell out of love with the industry a little bit just because I was, you know, sort of in a lot of um, a lot of larger um, networked meetings uh, that uh, sucks up a lot of your time, and and I got away from working, you know, with clients, helping them grow their business, which is probably what I love. Well, I was going to ask you, it was a massive job that you had uh, at Dentsu. How hard was it for you to walk away from that and and take the break? It sounds like it might have been a bit easier than than perhaps I thought. No, it was hard. It was really hard um, to to leave. I mean, I, there was. I mean, visual jazz became Isobar, so it was, and I was pretty sort of proud, I guess, and, and really conscious of of evolving that business into in the business it was when I, when I left. Um, you know, and it was a lot of my personal sort of DNA and passion still into that business, and and into Isobar globally too. You know, it was it was sort of um, again, I was very proud that a lot of what we sort of ran at Isobar or implemented at Isobar locally became um, sort of what Isobar adopted globally. So it was very hard, and it's very hard to leave. You know, when you're a founder in a network like that, you get a lot of sort of you know, there's a lot of political capital you get. There's a lot of respect. I know I love I love the business. I still do. You know, a lot of got a lot of love for for that, um, that brand. Um, but I think there was a couple of things, you know, one, it was, you know, find the right time to, to go. Um, you know, I was, again, I wanted to probably selfishly have a little bit of the drop the mic moment, you know, where it was kind of like, you know, had a massive journey, you know, it's 18 years of my life and it's nice, nice to leave it in a good spot. 
and um, there was an opportunity to do that. Um, and I also, you know, there was a, there was a, a fundamental, there was a leadership change at the top too, Denso Australia, and you know, I, I could have either sort of positioned myself to maybe do a role like that, or or, or partner up with another um, CEO. Um, and I just decided that I didn't want to do that again because I'd kind of got to the point where I'd had enough. And then the the last part was personal. You know, it was like my wife's startup. You know, she was she was working super hard trying to make that a success. We had a young family. Um, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, like when you're kind of a CEO of a big agency and the kids are sick or something happens or that, you know, like you, you, you're still working and, and she sort of drops everything to to do that. And and I just wanted to flip it on its head and um, and be be the dad and, and be the support and to, to sort of let, let that sort of try and flourish. Um, so there was all those sort of factors in play and that all just crystallises to be the right time to leave. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I just that journey of Isobar was, is incredible for me, you know, um, and I, I'm incredibly proud for what we managed to achieve and, um, still a bit sad that I don't, you know, don't work with them anymore. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're, they're a big global business. They'll, they'll do great. As a father and the husband of a wife who runs her own business i can completely relate to everything you've just said what i can't relate to of course is the position that you were in within dentsu aegis you know, a, a massive role a, a lot of pressure as, as you mentioned there's been a, a bit of change at the top there recently were you ever in the frame to or did you ever throw your hat in the ring potentially to lead dentsu aegis locally um I don't know what I can say, but uh, look at that. I was asked. Yeah, I probably can say that. I was asked whether I'd consider it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, a role like that never really appealed to me, you know. Um, certainly, you know, I was – I loved managing a brand, um, but in terms of a holding group, um, that was never really kind of what I ever wanted to do. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I also think, you know, like – it became there was an opportunity as well to um, have a larger role in the brand too, like a, a larger global role in the brand too. But you know, ultimately, I, I kind of I felt like at the time, um, and again, I probably should be careful what I say, but I felt like at the time, I, I just didn't want to be part of the problem. You know, like I felt like if I was to do a role like that, great, good for the ego, good for the good for the bank balance maybe at home, but but um you became a bit of a, a, a bigger cog in a bigger, big machine. And, 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 um, you could really see that, that, you know, that Dentsu holding group, and I'm sure the other holding groups are going through it. There's really those roles sort of needed to move out rather than sort of be, uh, come in. And, um, and it meant that, you know, you couldn't sort of pay that great mid-level strategist or, or creative or whatever that pay increase because you've got so much salary and so much, heaviness sort of caught up in a global regional level and I just didn't want to I just didn't want to be there fair enough let's go back a bit to to the visual jazz days because not everyone listening to the Mumbrella cast will be quite up to date with visual jazz and how it started and, and how you wound up in the position you're in today you were one of the young kind of pioneers in a way of of different thinking and we've seen a, a small handful of them. You mentioned, or I mentioned, Howie before. Um, and, and there's, you know, other people of that that ilk 
uh, you were definitely one of those people who did things very differently, uh, had an enormous amount of success. But could you perhaps just give us a really quick rundown on how visual jazz came about up until the time where it was uh, acquired by Aegis? Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we started VJ's Visual Jazz in two thousand one, and you know, and that is a classic agency name. You know, you come up with when you probably had too many beers, you know, and uh, and we, and literally it was straight out of university. Me, me, a good friend of mine. Uh, I grew up in country Victoria, and so did he. And we were one of the only two from our class that went to uni down in Melbourne. And we finished our degrees. We didn't like our grad jobs, and uh, we just said, "Let's start an agency." And um, unbeknownst to us, it was just after the dot com bust. Um, so you know, it was probably the worst time, but also the best time to start something. And much uh, like in a global pandemic, pretty much, pretty much. Um, and you know, we we I remember having like you know those opportunities where we would we would sort of speak to, and I, I studied marketing, so I kind of already had a little bit of a network of of uh, people that had sort of gone went, went into marketing roles. Um, and there was proposals for like from the likes of like Sausage Software. This will sort of test people's memory of like three four hundred thousand dollar platforms that that um, that proposed to to um, mid level clients or larger clients, and we were coming in there and doing the same work for $8,000. And for us, that was like, you know, that was huge bank. Um, but we just kind of built the business, you know, I guess at the right time um, in the right way, you know, to about 60 to 70 people. Um, and we were, you know, really a digital design agency. Um, and, uh, you know, it was kind of um, we rode that wave uh, until 2008 and, and we're lucky enough to um, you know, be tapped on the shoulder a few times and we sold the business to Mitchell and Partners, which is a lo- local ASX-listed holding group, media group, and they were doing a roll-up and then they on-sold that to Aegis. And, um, you know, it was the same time, you know, DT started at the same time, Reactive, um, who else is it? You know, a whole bunch of others. Not many of the brands are still around, um, but uh, and probably, probably quite rightly so when you're branded Visual Jazz. <laughs> But, um, but it was amazing and, and did all that and, and sort of did a two-year sort of golden handcuffs, you know, with, with Mitchells and Aegis. I actually left for a year, um, went backpacking for a year, um, which was which was amazing, and then sort of got encouraged to come back in the chair and, and, and merge Visual Jazz into Isobar, which was the global brand. Um, yeah. And you talk about the merge of Visual Jazz into Isobar and we also uh, – we've seen a lot of these – quirky names and startup agencies be acquired and then merge into to bigger names. Um, I, I think it was uh, 20, 2012, if I'm, I'm correct, when it became Visual mm. Jazz Isobar. Um, at 2015, sort Mouthful. of Soap Creative sort of move into that as well. So two very cool and quirky agencies move into a, a, a bigger, uh, more, I guess, uh, established name in in isobar but how did that make you feel in terms of seeing those names disappear and and maybe what they stood for disappear as well yeah i mean at the time i was probably um yeah there's a bit of emotion attached to it for sure you know there was kind of like a again i mean for me as a as a leader of that business um it was sort of a positive emotion. For me, it was kind of like an evolution, if you like. It was like we'd grown up, you know. It was kind of um, we'd uh, we'd made the big leagues in a way and 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 the, the spirit and the culture and the values and um, the way we operated, we just we just poured that into Isobar. And, um, and that, you know, again, the, the pride factor became the fact that that actually became a lot of 
part of the global DNA and the global operating model of ISABAR as well. So, so I felt like you know Visual Jazz was able to have a big influence in a in what it was essentially a, a big, uh, more corporate brand. And and but it was you know and I guess me having that experience as a founder of trying to lead that and do that and, and sell that to the team, and I did really believe in it. Um, I did really believe in the opportunity that brought to everybody and the fact that we could be more successful uh, as part of this global business. Just having that experience and, and the bruises that go with it because there's, there's, there's always people who don't want to come on the journey with you when that happens and especially when you're a sort of a tight-knit team when you're losing some staff who kind of go and say, well, that's not for me, that's not what I signed up for. Yeah, it, it, can, it can hurt um, a bit but just having that experience, I was able to sort of have a lot of empathy to other founders that, would have to go through that, whether it be soap or with collective or or these guys that we sort of brought into the into the holding group as well. Now, you mentioned uh, you mentioned, uh, of course, uh, that um, you know it was it was a growing up sort of phase, and I guess the next growing up phase for you, in a sense, is you're starting your own thing, and we've seen a lot of other agencies and and senior people in the industry start their own thing particularly within the last 12 months as well and it happens to be coming at a time where if you listen to some of the big networks we had martin sorrell speaking at mumbrella 360 and he was all about mergers all about bringing brands together within s4 capital group and then we spoke to jens monsies from wpp a similar sort of idea of uh, eradicating some brands, strengthening other brands, looking at how the business works as a whole. So in a sense, we're seeing networks slim down a bit brand name-wise, but we're seeing then a whole heap of other agencies on the independent side come up. up. Why now? Why is this a good time for independence run by industry leaders with a good name to start up? Well, I think there's just appetite really for to change from um, a lot of clients. Uh, I think um, the holding groups, you know, th- there's there is a lot of internal change that they're going through, and because of that, you know, they are quite internally focused. Really, they they need to be um, to transform. So, um, you know, and and they've they've probably been shedding, unfortunately, shedding a lot of good talent too, because um, they've had to for cost structures. They've got an operating profit they have to deliver. Um, to a head office somewhere, and that's just spread opportunity for for you know good sort of talent that wants to solve the client problem to really just be invested in themselves and, and invest locally. And um, and I think the other side is that you know clients are becoming sort of more more open and having a, a larger appetite to um, have more sort of pinch hitting style projects rather than big retainers or or, or feel like they need the big safety net of a big holding group or a big global network um to to manage their 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 needs um they're they're more happy to go and brief out a specific project or or a specific task to a smaller um you know consultancy or agency where they think they can work with the experts on the ground or with the partners directly as opposed to working on a large firm that's got a lot of ancillary sort of stuff around it Um, so i think there's, there's just opportunity um, a bit of market dynamics in terms of what the competitive set are doing. Um, and I think it's probably a fertile ground, you know, to kind of disrupt the, the landscape a bit. 
And there was a little bit of a rumour swirling around earlier in the year that you, that you might join up with Simon Ryan uh, as well, who obviously a, an old colleague of yours at Dentsu. Yeah. Um, was that a, a serious rumour at any stage? Yeah, so, I mean, Simon and I are good mates. So we, and obviously he was my boss for a while. You know, we were peers when he was managing Cara too. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, you know, we probably sketched out some things on napkins and backs of notebooks and stuff like that over, over a few breakfasts, uh, over the, over the few months leading up to that. But it ultimately just at the end, it wasn't really the right thing to do, um, for me uh, personally. Um, but he's still a good friend of mine and, um, and, you know, I sort of catch up with him where I can and, um, you know, we help each other out where we can, whether personally or professionally. Um, and he's doing, like, I think their business is going um, really well too. So, but no, yeah, it was quite close. It just um, just wasn't the right thing in the end. And uh, I was really passionate also about building this sort of this small consulting team, um, which was really about, you know, you know kind of, fixing the agency consult or agency client dynamic you know that value exchange of going you know what like rather than a predetermined brief you know rather than this big three-year retainer that you're pitching rather than whatever it might be like let's just try and get to the heart of what the problem is and let's see how we can solve it and if we can't solve it let's let's connect you to the right partner that can solve it and um it's just a bit of a, a different fundamental in in, in vision yeah, interesting that you say that. One of the quotes that uh, you provided when uh, we were talking earlier, much earlier, when you launched Shadowboxer, uh, and I'll read it out, was uh, brand experience is really the modern agency position, but what's missing from that is the capability to reimagine the business model, ways of working and culture to support it all. It seems crazy to me that clients trust agencies with brand but revert to consultancies for business strategy. Uh, so in your mind, um, what, what are creative agencies potentially lacking at the moment or, or where can they capitalise uh, in terms of you know, expanding out their opportunities and where can Shadowboxer sort of step in? I mean, the you know, creative, you know, the power of ideas, power of creativity, um, power of brand, you know, I'm a massive believer in that, always, always have been. But I think one thing that when you are in a creative, more a creative agency, if that's kind of the gravity of that type of business, um, ultimately you're really getting communication briefs um, more than anything else. Um, so, uh, so you kind of start with you know that you kind of start with the implement what you're implementing before you actually really kind of figure out what problem is there is to solve. But I think that, and this is what you know, whilst. That's a there's a definite need there in in the industry for that, um, and that could be super powerful for a business. I think what can be even more powerful is if if it doesn't start there, but it connects business and brand strategy together, and, and as well as with technology and customer experience too. So when you're thinking about things holistically, you know the way I kind of I've always thought about it a little bit is like if if your business is the engine, and then communications and media is the accelerator. Um, really, if you're if you're pressing the foot down on the accelerator when the engine's not working uh, effectively, then you're really kind of wasting money. You know, you're really kind of not um, being as effective as you can with your spend to, to help grow your business. So, being able to make sure that you know you've got the internal capability right, you've got the you know the technology platform right, you've got the the business fundamentals, the business the pricing model, the business fundamental strategy right, before you really kind of press hard on that accelerator, I think is important. 
We've got a couple of minutes left only, so I'd be remiss not to ask you about the fact that uh, there is a venture arm to Shadow Boxer, uh, and you announced uh, one of the first clients uh, with that uh, as well. And, and correct me if I'm wrong on the pronunciation, Doshi? Doshi. Um, Doshi. Doshi, thank you. Um, tell me a bit more about the, the venture arm, why it's important to the business model of, of Shadow Boxer and why you particularly want to get a bit of skin in the game. That's something I've always wanted to do, actually. Um, you know, in, I could never sell it um, in at ISA Bar globally, but um, but rather than obviously just always, you know, always charge a fee and fees predominantly in professional services businesses are based on head hours, about like how you can have a better value exchange. So, and how you how you sort of treat more that that relationship as a joint venture, whether that's you know there's a commercial um, outcome like that or not. Um, but the, the the joint ventures we're we're sort of trying to do in, in what we call radical ventures is like the you know, opportunity to have like yes we, we may charge a fee uh, and a small fee but like let's look at how we can have some sweat equity in that business um, or we can create a co venture or we can have stock options or whatever it might be because we want to be invested in this business as much as you are you know we want to be part of the journey of its long term success not just making some revenue out of you today um, and we and we've We've done that a couple of times now, um, you know, and so far so good, you know, like the businesses are, are flourishing um, uh, and we're hoping that that's a, 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 the model for us to continue to sort of create different, uh, like value in our business in a different way, you know, value which is not about scaling just our team, you know, having, having you know, hundreds of people and, and building our business that way but like continuing to be that sort of smaller smaller consultancy type business that might get to 30, 40 people but has a, a number of businesses that we've either got some equity in or we've helped co-create, um, you know, and we've supported founders in doing that because a lot of these founding teams or these founders in sort of startups and scale-ups, they may not have, you know, the level of design capability or technology capability or, or you know, business or brand strategy that you really need to cut through just creating a good product. And I'll, I'll round out, Conrad, with uh, the fact that just this morning you've announced two new partners for the, the consultancy, uh, Stephen McGrath, Tom Ashmore, and they're joining yourself, Mike Fraser and Stephen Graham. Uh, what's the plans for 21, particularly the, the, the early part of 21? Are we going to ex- see Shadowboxer expand out a, a little bit more uh, how many staff do you have? Are there new clients coming on board? Tell me about the the future of Shadowboxer. Yeah, um, hopefully, hopefully, there's a few more that come on board. We've got there's probably three or four um, staff members that will come on board um, pretty early in the new year. Um, you know, uh, and we've we're working on two or three um, sort of live projects that will be pretty substantial. Um, that are, hopefully we can announce pretty soon too. Uh, so look, I think it's just a bit of a keep going with. The vision and the, the 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 plan we've got in place, you know, nothing's going to change radically since we've just launched. Um, but you know, hopefully for us, it's a, a bit of sort of good, healthy growth. Um, some really great, exciting projects. We can hopefully talk about some things soon in there that that we think are you know quite different and exciting um, in the market. Um, and at the moment, really, um, we're just having a lot of fun again. Um, it's uh, it's doing great work with great people. Um, you know, people that are on a mission, people that that want to sort of make an impact um, on what they do. And when you're kind of working and surrounding yourself with people like that, like it, 
definitely makes for better and more meaningful work, but also kind of a more fun day. Fantastic. Conrad Spilver, thank you so much for your time on the Mumbrella cast. Good luck with Shadowbox uh, moving into 21, and we hope we'll be speaking to you a fair bit in the future. Thanks, Damon. Appreciate the interest too, mate. And that's it for this week. But before we go, sign up to Mumbrella Pro's free seven-day trial to access hundreds of hours of exclusive video content and audio analysis. Gain access to a comprehensive industry directory with over 2,000 contacts across agencies, media companies, and brands. And be sure to check out the brand new case studies for top insights on just what goes into creating award-winning work. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash pro for more information. That's it for this week, though. Thank you very much, Xander and Liv, for joining us on the Mumbrella Thanks Cast. Thank you.